Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, Lord, we thank you for the Sabbath day, the day to come and, and join together in solemn rest, a day to come together to rest in your grace and your mercy, to give praise and worship to your name for the saving grace that you have extended to us through Jesus Christ, a day to come and to hear your word proclaimed to our hearts, to speak to us, to direct us, to show us your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that we could come together as a people and a nation that allows us this wonderful liberty and let us not take that for granted. Lord, today I pray for Brother Bodie Spicer over at Faith Baptist. As that church gathers together, I pray that your grace be upon them. That your spirit be amongst them. Speak to their hearts and give them direction today. And Lord, speak to us. Speak to us. Be here in our midst. Fall down upon us. Let us hear your word today. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. As we're continuing our study in the book of Galatians. You know, fear is a powerful persuader. Fear is a powerful persuader. Fear can persuade us from trying new things. It can persuade us from not pursuing dreams, dreams that perhaps even God has laid upon our hearts. Fear can keep us from doing all kinds of things. Fear can even keep us, can persuade us to keep silent when we ought to speak out when someone is we see someone bullying bullying another or when we see some kind of injustice in the world we can shrink back in fear and not speak out when we ought to speak out fear can also keep us from proclaiming the truth of the gospel in our world today in fact, we see many Christians, professing Christians throughout our world, even many churches who proclaim to be Christians, we see them shrinking back in fear, fear of the secular culture, fear of the popular, popular opinion, shrinking back from the truth of the gospel. But dear friend, I want us to see today from our text that God's gospel is worth courageously confronting error in order to preserve truth. God's gospel is worth courageously confronting error in order to preserve truth. That's what we're going to see in our text today. I want you to leave here, dear friend, with a greater desire to preserve the truth of the gospel. And to be able to proclaim it even in the face 
of heavy pressure to do otherwise. So in order to do this, I'm going to give you today three axioms or three principles that we need to understand from our text in order to preserve the truth of the gospel. Three axioms that we must understand in order to preserve the gospel, the truth of the gospel message. As we look at our text today, I, keep, I remind you, in the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing error. He is addressing some false teachers who have come to the churches of Galatia and they're spreading error, they're spreading a false gospel. And he is confronting those teachers through this letter. And in, our, in the context in which we are in now, from verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Paul has in mind, he is proclaiming and defending, number one, the truth of the gospel, saying this is a gospel that you can trust. This is not man's gospel. This is not my gospel, Paul is saying, as those false teachers are proclaiming. This is not my gospel, but this is God's gospel. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he, he gives his little thesis statement for this little section of Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that we preached by that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he has been defending this gospel in which he has been preaching. It's not his gospel, but this is God's gospel. And we've looked at, there's three stages to this argument. The first stage was, we saw that uh, his conversion was a corroboration that this was God's gospel. His conversion itself proved, stands as proof, that this is not just man's gospel, but this is God's gospel. How else can you explain the radical transformation of this terrorist who is going out and terrorizing Christians to become an evangelist in a matter of minutes. The only, the only way to explain it is by the power of God in God's gospel. Second, we saw the, the confirmation through the community's confirmation. That is, Paul, as he laid out the gospel before the church there in Jerusalem, the gospel that he had been proclaiming, the church there, along with all of the other apostles who had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus during his earthly ministry, they looked at Paul's gospel, they examined it thoroughly and said, yes, yes, Paul, this is the gospel that we also receive from Jesus. This is not something that you have made up. This is indeed God's gospel. And now today we get this final proof that this is, indeed God, this is indeed God's gospel as we look at Paul's courageous confrontation with Peter. His co courageous confrontation with Peter. And in this final little section here, Paul actually has, I think, two objectives. Number one, he is giving that proof, that final proof, that this is indeed God's gospel and not something that he made up. It's not just a, a figment of his imagination. It's not something out of his creative mind, but this is indeed God's gospel. But second, he is writing this to show the Galatians how they should respond to false teachers. 
And it goes to show us how we should respond to false teachers. When we hear falsehood, we should not shrink back in fear because of the world putting pressure on us to to back up and to, to be quiet. We don't shrink back in fear, but we stand courageously on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope that we see both of those today as we look at our text. If you found your place there, please stand with me now in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, hear the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before, some, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So today we see three axioms from our text to preserving the truth of the Gospels. Three axioms or three, present, pre, three principles that we need to understand in order to preserve the Gospel. First axiom that we see in our text this morning is when people are great and God is small... The gospel gets perverted. When people are great and God is small, the gospel, it ends up getting perverted. We see that in Paul's confirmation with Peter. Cephas here is another name for Peter. It's the the Aramaic word for Peter. And so Peter, we have the the scene set for us. Sometime while Paul, this was, this was taking place after Paul came back from his first missionary journey where he planted those church up, up in Galatia. And before they go down to the Jerusalem council, which uh, Jason read this morning. So this is happening, Paul's writing this letter and this scene takes place somewhere between those two events. And so Peter, he comes down from Jerusalem And he comes to Antioch, and he is there with Paul and Barnabas and all the Christians there at Antioch. He came down to to see God's workings in this church, and he is there, and he is in fellowship with them all. And when he comes down to Antioch, he he is fellowshipping openly, freely with the Gentiles who are there. In other words, he's, he's sitting at the table, he's, he, he's he eating bacon with the Gentiles, right? 
Which that's a big no-no in the Jewish mindset. You're not supposed to eat bacon, right? You're not supposed to eat pork. But he is there. He's feasting with the Gentiles. Now, I really don't know if he was eating bacon or not, but he wasn't supposed to be eating with the Gentiles either because that was just as offensive to the Jewish minds as it was eating bacon. But Peter, he was there and he was fellowshipping openly with the Gentiles until these brothers come down from Jerusalem to check things out. And these brothers, they're of the sect of the Pharisees. They, they think you should be separating yourself. Jews ought to be separating themselves from the Gentiles. They are the ones who think that, that uh, the Gentiles need to adopt all the law of Moses. And so there's this, this thing taking place, this conflict beginning to take place. And what does Peter do in the face of this? Well, Peter shrinks back. Under the pressure of these Gentiles, or on the, under the pressure of these Jews who came down from Jerusalem, he shrinks back, and instead of feasting with the Gentiles, now he is separating himself, and he's going over here to the Jewish table, and he is just hanging out with the Jews. We're not supposed to eat over there at the Gentile table. We're going to stick with the Jewish table. He has separated himself. Now, I don't know why where Paul has been during all this time. But it's apparent that Paul wasn't there at, at that moment when the, the Jews came down. He wasn't there to see all of this because when he comes in, he's seeing all of this taking place. There, The Jews are over here at this table, the Gentiles are over here at this table, and they're eating separately. And, and Paul, he sees this, and he takes offense. And our text here tells us that he opposes Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Peter stood condemned. Imagine that. Peter, the number one apostle, the, the right hand of Jesus when he walked this earth. Here is Peter. You think by now Peter's got it all straightened out. You think by now after all that Peter has been through, after preaching that big sermon there on the day of Pentecost, after seeing the vision of the blanket coming down from heaven and all of the, the unclean animals coming down on that blanket and the Lord saying, Peter, take up and eat. Oh no, Lord, not me. I've been a Jew since my birth. I would never think of taking such vile things. But the Lord said, what I have made holy is not unclean. And after that, God took Peter to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter saw the Spirit of the Lord fall down upon this Gentile man and his whole household. Showing that the gospel had now come not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles alike. And the Gentiles didn't have to convert over to Judaism to receive the gospel. No, God accepted them as they were. But now here, under pressure, Peter shrinks back and he stands condemned. Now what does it mean that he stands here condemned? Condemned means to become uh, demonstrably guilty or in the wrong, especially here in this case, before God. Now can a Christian become condemned before God? Well, not in the sense that he should, should lose his salvation, no. That's not what Paul is saying here. 
But he is being condemned. He is coming under the discipline of God. For Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Peter is in that place where he is about to be chastised by God. He is not right with God. He is not following the way of God. He is denying and, and devoting or destroying the gospel by his activity. Paul understands this. He sees that Peter stands condemned before God because of his hypocrisy. Why is he condemned? Because of just that. Because of his hypocrisy. As Jason shared this morning in the children's message, you know what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite, in fact, the, the Greek term for hypocrite was used for actors back in, in the Grecian time, in the, the Hellenistic age. Actors were called hypocrites because they, they played another part, right? They were themselves another person, but when they stepped up on stage, they put on that mask and they played a part. And that's what a hypocrite does. They play a part. They say one thing and then they act another way. And that's exactly what Peter was doing in this case. Oh, before the Jews came down, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles. He was doing what the gospel says. His actions were in step with the gospel. But when these Jews come down, he puts on his Jewish face and he separates himself. He acts hypocritically. And now he is out of step with the gospel. And what does that mean when he's out of step with the gospel, when he's acting so hypocritically? That means that he is perverting the gospel. Peter, in fact, is doing, with his actions, he's doing the very same thing that those false teachers to whom Paul is writing the Galatians about, he is doing the exact same thing. He's not preaching it, he's not teaching it, by, by, but by his actions he is displaying it. Oh yes, he would say, oh, even the Gentiles are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, but then he was separating himself. His actions weren't in step with what he was proclaiming. He was being a hypocrite, and through his actions he was perverting the gospel that he was pro proclaiming. He was being a hypocrite, and he was rejecting the gospel. Dear friend, I wonder how many times in our own lives, in our day-to-day -day lives, we pervert the gospel. We distort the gospel by the way we act with our friends and family. How often do we pervert the gospel when we go outside of these walls? Yes, we put on our Christian face when we come in here. We sing praises to God. We talk about how God's good, the good news of Jesus Christ is for the whole world of all people, all ages, all races, all socioeconomic classes. But when we leave here, we separate ourselves from all other ones who are not like us. How often do we pervert the gospel by our activity? We stand condemned. We stand condemned for our own hypocrisy. Fearing people rather than God can have devastating consequences. I want you to see that. 
Fearing people rather than fearing God can have devastating consequences. Number one, friend, it can rob you of the joy of God. It can rob you from the joy of God. When you're living contrary to the Gospel, when you're living out of step with the Gospel, you're proclaiming a false Gospel and God will chastise you. Instead of being in that that position of a loving father, then you are forcing God to step into that, that place of a disciplinarian. A father disciplining his children. Now parents, when you are having to discipline your children, or in the past when you had to discipline your children, was that relationship then defined by joy? And happiness? No. It was defined by sorrow. It hurt you for having to discipline your child and it hurt your child as they were the object of that discipline. When we are out of step with the Gospel, when we're living contrary to the Gospel, we are putting God in the place of a disciplinarian having to discipline His children. And we're robbed of the joy of our Father. Second, hypocrisy is devastating to the Gospel. As we go out and we proclaim another Gospel. How many people was was Peter leading astray through his hypocrisy? How many people was was he dragging away? from the truth, true Gospel by his hypocrisy. Well, Paul even says, even Barnabas, even Barnabas was caught up in all of this and even he was led astray. How many people have we robbed the truth of the Gospel from by our hypocrisy? All because we fear men rather than God. All because we fear the opinions of people, of our peers, more than we fear God and love God. Dear friend, how often do you pervert the Gospel out of fear? Edward Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says this, We spend too much time wondering what others may have thought about our outfit or the comment that we made in the small group meeting. We see opportunities to testify about Christ, but we avoid them. We are more concerned about looking stupid, that is, fearing people, than we are about acting sinfully, that is, fearing the Lord. How often do we act in a hypocritical way, out of step with the Gospel, all because of our fear of other people? When people are great and God is small, the Gospel ends up getting perverted. That's the first axiom. 
Axiom number two, when God is great and people are small, the gospel is preserved. When God is great and people are small, the gospel is preserved. Oh, I love this about Paul. Paul is one who is out there. He is standing firm in the gospel. Oh, let's look at our text and see what Paul does. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Notice that. All the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, even my buddy Barnabas, who came up there with me to you, to you up there in Galatians, who came with me and brought the gospel with me, this brother of mine who I've been ministering with all of these years, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Now I want you to see this. We pause right there. What does Paul do? Paul stands alone for the gospel. Paul stands alone for the gospel. He fears God rather than man. His love for God and what God wants and what God sees is far greater than his love for men. Far greater than his fear for men. And he stands alone. All the other Jews, they're following after Peter's hypocrisy. They have left the, the camp. They have fallen into this. Even his buddy Barnabas has fallen into this hypocrisy. And here comes Paul. He's the lone ranger. And he comes up and he stands up to Peter to his face. He's standing alone for the call of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Defending. Let me tell you this, friend. I want you to see this. I want you to learn this. I want you to know this. Standing up and defending the gospel can be a lonely place to be. Standing up and defending the gospel, especially in our day and time, more and more and more here in America, standing up for the gospel is a lonely place to be. Because we see Christians, professing Christian after professing Christian, Falling away from the gospel, receiving error, proclaiming error, exalting error, all because they bow to secularism. They bow to popular opinion. And we're finding more and more and more to stand firm on the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a lonely place to be. Let me tell you, dear friends, First Baptist Church, before it's all over with, these pews may get less full. We might see less people coming to this church. As more and more people buy into falsehood, as more and more people shrink under fear, 
We may even see a time, dear friend, that the doors of this church are closed and those who are true Christians, those who are, are bound by the gospel of Jesus Christ, will have to meet in houses unable to stand up in public lest we die for our faith. I mean, I wouldn't have thought we'd have been in the place we are today ten years ago. But look how far we've fallen in just ten years. What's going to happen in twenty? Defending the gospel of Jesus Christ is a lonely place to be. It's lonely students at school. When you stand for your faith at school, you're going to see yourself as a lone ranger quite often. It's a lonely place to be in the workplace. It's a lonely place to be in the public square. Nevertheless, we must stand for the gospel of God. Not only does Paul stand here alone, but Paul also stands for the truth of the gospel. He stands for the truth of the gospel. Notice here, notice here that this is not some power move for Paul. It's not like Paul is putting himself up against Peter. Oh, here's Peter, the number one apostle, right? He's number one in Jerusalem, so I'm going to oppose him to his face. I'm going to get into this power struggle with Peter, and I'm going to claim some power for myself. That's not Paul's intention. That's not Paul's intention at all. It's not a power struggle at all. He's not concerned with power. He's not concerned with, with Peter's position over his or, or vice versa. He's not concerned with all of those things. In fact, you remember from our, our last verse here, our last little section there, he talked about those who, who seemed to be, to seem to be influential. But he said, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He's not concerned with all of that. He's not con concerned with how he is perceived in the church. He's not concerned with some position in the church he is defending the gospel of Jesus Christ that's what's at stake here they are out of step with the gospel he says the, the gospel of Jesus it, it, it's, that's what's important that's what's at stake they were perverting the gospel by their actions they were saying not only do you need Jesus but you need all of these other things it's Jesus plus just by their actions they were perverting the gospel. They were perverting the gospel. And Paul stands for the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many, many who compromise the truth of the gospel today because it is unpopular in the world. You see it, I see it, it's on the news every day. There are complete denominations pulling away from the truth of the gospel. They're compromising the gospel. They're letting error into the gospel all because it's unpopular in the public square today. But dear friends, we need to, to affirm this, that there is only one gospel, one message of eternal salvation. One message, one gospel, that's it. 
It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus anything else is not the gospel. The, the gospel of God, it addresses sin. It addresses sin. That's not a popular thing today. That's not a popular thing in our culture. If you address sin, oh, well, well you're, you're talking about people. You're, you're being hateful if you talk about sin. No, we've got to address sin. Now, it's important that we don't address it in a hateful manner. It's not the purpose of it. it to call out, to sin, out sin, to address sin, is not to belittle someone or put someone down. The, the point of, of calling out sin, the point of addressing sin, is to point people to the gospel. We're all sinners. We're all deserving of hell. Because of our own sin. And we can't just point out someone else's sin just to put them down. When we address sin, it's to bring people to the gospel. Sin must be addressed. The gospel of God is exclusive. It's exclusive. It's an exclusive gospel. There is only one way. Boy, it just kills me. See, denomination after denomination coming out in their, their professions of faith saying that Jesus is a way. No, Jesus is not a way. He is the way. To proclaim anything else is not the gospel. It is exclusive. It is through Jesus Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through Buddha, not through Allah, not through any other God. No one comes to the Father except through Me. It is exclusive. But also, in a way, it's inclusive. It's inclusive, and some people don't like that. It's inclusive in that it, it, it goes out to all who will believe. It goes out to all who believe. It's not for one race or the other. It's not for one socioeconomic class or another. It's not from one people or another. It's for all who will believe. It's, exclusive. it's inclusive. It includes the entire world. Go therefore unto all nations. Make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. That's our command. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's all who will believe. And the God's, God's Gospel, it is the only Gospel. And it is God's Gospel. This Gospel that Paul is proclaiming, this Gospel that Paul is, is preserving, this Gospel that he is standing up for, this is not his Gospel. This is God's Gospel. It is God. When God is great and people are small, the gospel gets preserved. But we got to get our priorities straight, we got to get our fears straight. We got to love God and fear God far more than we fear this world. 
far more than we fear our friends, far more than we fear our neighbors, if we're going to preserve the truth of the gospel, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. So axiom number one, when people are great and God is small, the gospel gets perverted. Axiom number two, when God is great and people are small, the gospel is preserved. And axiom number three, God's gospel is worth courageous confrontation. God's gospel is worth courageous confrontation. We see here in our text that Paul's willingness to stand is evidence that this is indeed God's gospel. Here's that other overarching principle that Paul is trying to teach, that this is indeed God's gospel. Paul is saying this is not my gospel, this is God's gospel, and he is giving this as evidence that he stands up against Peter. He says, Peter, this great apostle, this one who has walked with God, I opposed him to his face. He's doing this to show that this is not his gospel. If this was his gospel, if this was Paul's gospel, then, then maybe he would do whatever it took to get that confirmation, to get that approval from the apostles back in Jerusalem. But he's not worried about that. He's not worried about their approval. He's not worried about that because this isn't his gospel. This isn't his agenda, this is God's agenda, and it's God's gospel. This is wonderful evidence for us today as we go out, as we question that. Oh, is this the right gospel? Is this God's gospel? Maybe some of you even here today, you've questioned that. How can I trust the Bible? How can I trust that this is really God's Word? Because people have gone to death defending the gospel. You think about that. Paul, he, he went to his death for the gospel. Peter ultimately goes to his death for the gospel. In fact, all of the apostles minus John go to their death defending the gospel. And John was bold alive and exiled on the island of Patmos all for the gospel. In fact, Peter or Paul talks about 500 plus people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, witnessed the resurrected Lord, many of the 500 died a martyr's death defending the gospel. Now, one person might go to their death defending a lie that they started, but 500 are not going to go to their death defending a lie Someone's going to give in. Someone's going to say, oh no, <laughs> that was phony baloney. That was, that, none of that was true. It was all false. We made it up because we wanted to start our own religion. But not one, of the, one person ever said that. All of those Christians who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ went to their grave defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can trust that this gospel, this gospel that is preserved for us in God's Word is indeed God's gospel. Dear friend, we can trust this. We can take it to the bank. And God's gospel is worth courageous confrontation. If this is truly God's gospel, 
If we can trust that, then it's worth courageous confrontation as we go out and people begin to attack us because we're, we're, they call us bigots. They call us all these foul names because we're Christians. It's worth it. It's worth it to defend the gospel because this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the only gospel that saves. Millions upon billions of people will go to their grave and step into an eternity of hell because they trusted in a false gospel. There's one gospel. That's God's gospel. And that is God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, down to this world to take on human flesh to do what we could never do, to live a life in perfect obedience to the Father's will and go to Calvary's cross and die on the cross for our sins. And then raised Him up again after three days showing that all sins have been paid for. And indeed providing us with a righteousness not our own. By His grace, through faith in Jesus, there's only one gospel that saves, and that is trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're trusting in another gospel, dear friend, you're trusting in the wrong message. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. When people are great and God is small, the gospel gets perverted. But, when God is great, and people are small, the gospel is, is preserved. Not only is it preserved, but dear friend, it prospers. It prospers. It goes out to the nations. And God's gospel is worth courageous confrontation. It is worthy of our allegiance. It's worthy of our sacrifice. It's worthy. So today, dear friends, stand firm for God's gospel. Stand firm for God's gospel. I want to ask you this. Have you ever compromised the gospel by your own activities, by your own way of living? Have you ever compromised the gospel? Honestly, if we're all honest with ourselves, we'd all have to answer yes. At some point in time, I have failed. I have acted hypocritically, and I have not lived in step with the gospel. We would have to admit that. But I want you to know, dear friends, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, there is redemption even for we Christians who act hypocritically. If you have not stood firm for the gospel, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Praise God when Peter, Peter, think about Peter. Boy, I'm thankful for Peter and his example. Peter doubted the power of God to keep him afloat when he stepped out there on the water. He denied Christ three times on the, the night when, when Christ was, was condemned. And here we see that he distorts the gospel through his hypocrisy. Yet we see time and time again Christ restoring Peter. When he doubted, Christ reached down and picked him up out of the waves. 
When he denied him, he came to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. And now, when we see him distorting the gospel, he is restored. As Jason read earlier, when they go down to the Jerusalem council, Peter stands up after he has been confronted by Paul to his face. Peter stands up in the midst of them all and says, Brothers, Paul's right. I've witnessed it myself. I was wrong. He's right. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and it's not by the law. Peter, we see time and time again, was restored by the power of Jesus Christ. And if you have acted hypocritically and you've distorted the gospel, dear friend, there's restoration in Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. He will forgive you and restore you. Dear church, we must stand for the truth of the gospel. No matter what it costs us, we must stand firm for the truth of the gospel. And dear friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in the Gospel, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, dear friend, there's only one message of hope for you today. And that is to turn away from your rebellion. Turn away from running away from God. Turn away from all the other things you've been doing to try to win favor with God. And turn to Jesus. Trust in Him for what He has done and He will save you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for the confirmation that we have in the life of Paul and in the lives of so many martyrs who have gone to their deaths, deaths defending the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Over 500 witnesses and not one of them ever came back and said, no, it was a hoax. Many of them going even to their deaths, defending the gospel. Oh Lord, <clears throat> let us stand in the hall of the witnesses, defending your gospel to our very last breath. And Lord, if there's one today who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, today, let them turn. Let them see Him and trust in Him. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.